sometimes there is an expectation of something of equal worth given in return for the item. So it's the idea of, I gave you something, but since you didn't give me something back, uh, you know, I, I want what I gave you back in return. Because there's an expectation that when I gave it to you that I was going to get something, but when I didn't get something, I'm kind of upset, so I want it back. So that's the idea here, but it's based on a cultural misunderstanding that took place between early European settlers and the indigenous people or the Native American Indians whom they traded with. Oftentimes it was a one-sided deal. The Indians gave them gifts thinking that they would get gifts back from Europe or from other settlers who came in. And when they didn't get something in return, they wanted what they gave the settlers back. You say, well, that's kind of odd. Well, yes, it is odd. But that's what the expectation was. See, we all live with expectations, right? We do something and we have an expectation that something's going to happen in return for what I did. So, number two, often the Europeans would view an, an exchange of items as gifting, believing they owed nothing. And I think that's what happens in a lot of the world today. We give something. As the receiver, we think, oh, well, great, I don't have to do anything for this because that's just what a gift is. See, there was a misunderstanding. There was miscommunication. There was expectations that weren't met. And so, believing that they owed nothing, in return uh, to the natives who were generous with them, while indigenous people saw the exchange as a form of trade or equal exchange, so they had no expectations from their gifts. So... The etymology of it, the phrase originated, according to researcher David Wilton, in a cultural misunderstanding that arose when they encountered the Native Americans as they arrived in North America in the 15th century. However, today, in fact, uh, in 1765 by Thomas Hutchinson, he characterized as an Indian gift as a present for which an equivalent return is expected and which suggests that the phrase originally referred to as a simple exchange of gifts. But by 1860, however, John Russell Bartlett, Dictionary of Americanisms, Bartlett said that the phrase was being used by children here in New York to mean one who gives a present and then takes it back. Amazing how that phrase, you're an Indian giver, really took feet here in New York amongst children of all people. At any rate... I wonder how often we do that with God. I wonder how often we take a moment and we say, hey, you know, I really want to, you know, give God my heart, my life, my whatever. And we make a commitment to do so. And yet it doesn't happen. In fact, this morning, as I told my wife, as I as I prepared for today's message this week, it feel, felt like this week as my mind was going everywhere. And I sat there and I prayed. I said, Lord, what do you want me to say this morning? As I do every week. I said, Lord, just there's not a clear thought of a direction like there normally is. There's this thought and this thought and that thought and this thought. And I said, Lord, I just feel like I'm all over the map. And so this morning, it's going to be kind of like a conversation. And maybe there's going to be some parts of this conversation that you can relate to, and I hope you can. But as we look at Scripture a little bit later, I hope that you'll ask yourself the same questions I'm asking by things that I'm experiencing, things that I'm going through in our walk here as a child of God. So this morning I'd like to have kind of a conversation. But I wonder this question. 
If an Indian giver is someone who gives somebody something and then tries to take it back, I wonder how often we may have done that with God. I wonder if there's been a time in our life where we said, God, you have, and we made a commitment, we made a, an appeal to God to say, hey, God, I want to live for you, I want to do this, and yet we, over time, take it back. So, I don't know if you've ever been an Indian giver with God, but let me speak on behalf of me this morning for a few moments. There have been many times in my life that I have given, fill in the blank, to God. And then I catch myself, just a short time later, having to re-give it to Him again. In fact, I see passage of the, passages in Scripture that I can relate to. I think of Second Chronicles chapter 14 and following, where Asa goes in before the kingdom, and he takes down all the idols, and he takes down all the high places, and he commands everybody to serve the real God. And then all of a sudden, a few verses later, he's going back and doing it again. And I asked myself this question, why did he have to do it again? If he's already done it, he's already made this commitment, he's already given everything to God, why does he have to go back and do it again? Because I think all of us, like Asa, we give things to God, and then we catch ourselves inadvertently taking it back. Anybody ever done that? Let me give you a couple examples, at least the way that I think. Uh, I gave him my life. In fact, I can remember as if it were 10 minutes ago the when I did that. I was in eighth grade. I was listening to a message by Garland Cofield, and after the message was over, I went outside. I went out over by a tree. I knelt underneath that tree, and I said, God, you have my life. Whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. I was in eighth grade. I'll never forget that moment when I said, God, you have my life. It happened. I could, I could, it's just so clear as if it happened 10 minutes ago. I'll never forget that. And you know, by the way, that when you give God your life, it means everything, right? I mean, we will all agree with that, right? So if we're going to make a commitment to give God our life, it really does mean everything in our life. It doesn't mean just certain parts of our lives. It doesn't mean, you know, the parts of life that are convenient to give to Him. It means everything because when we give something to God, well, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But I gave Him my life, which, by the way, includes everything. Have you ever done that? you ever given God your life? You say, well, I'm in church, Pastor. Well, that doesn't mean anything. To a lot of people, they do certain things to get certain, remember the expectations? I'm going to do this so that I have a certain expectation in return. And so often we come to church, we got our, our Bible and our thing, and how's it going? And everyone says, fine. And we really know it's not all fine. It's as I prayed, we know that there are things going on behind closed doors that no one else knows about. There are things that you're struggling with, things that are hurting you, things that you're dealing with that no one else knows about. But bless God, we brought our Bible to church and we're all fine. Right? And there's really a lot more there because we've given God our lives, but we've taken certain things back. And let me show you how we do that in just a moment. But I gave him my time, talents, and treasures. Have you ever done that? I mean, my time, I mean, the very fact that when I get up in the morning and, uh, you know, I say, God, this day is yours, but then three hours into the day, something happens if it goes that long, and all of a sudden you're trying to control the outcome of the day. It's like you gave it to him, but yet I'm still going to control how this day goes. Because that's what we do. We're control freaks. We gave him our talents. I mean, God gave you the ability to play an instrument, and I say often, you know, my wife plays the piano, my son plays the drums, I play the radio, and I'm really good at it. 
But what talents do you have? What abilities do you have that you've given to God and yet God doesn't get to use them? But you say you've given to him. Or even our treasures. All our treasures are God's. I mean, he gives us everything that we have. They're his. And yet we don't give to him. But everything we have is from him. Or we have these treasures, these material goods, and the wealth that we have all around us. And yet we use it selfishly. Because that's what we do. We prepare for a rainy day or we pray for the accident that will never happen. We live for the what-ifs rather than the what-can-be in life. Maybe you've given your, your time, talents, and treasures too and then have taken them back. Or you say, well, Pastor, I gave him my job. I mean, I don't really care for my job. It's not my ideal job. It wouldn't be the job that I pick, but God has provided me a job and I gave it back to him. And yet... We gripe about it. We don't like it. We hate the people we work with. The boss is a jerk. The authority is just ignorant. And we have all these thoughts, and we voice them, and we get all of our coworkers riled up in a conversation, and yet, hey, you want to come to church Sunday? We ruin our testimony because of our griping. But we gave him our job. Did we really give it to him? Because really, ultimately, and I've said this many times over the years, God gives us a job for two reasons. Number one, to take care of our families. And number two, to have a mission field. And then number three, to contribute to the work that he gives us to do. So have we really given him our jobs? Or say, well, Pastor, I gave him my dreams and aspirations. What dreams do you have? I think as a young person growing up, we have all kinds of dreams. We're going to have this kind of a family and this kind of a car and this kind of a house and we're going to go on trips to this kind of a place and and all of a sudden you get 60 and you realize like really none of that matters anymore but we had our dreams and we had our aspirations and i'm not saying they're bad or wrong to have i'm not saying that please mis- don't misunderstand me but i wonder how often we say god what do you have for my life i know i'd like to do this and lord if it's your will we'll do that but what is it that you want me to do with this life what is it that you want me to experience have we really given him our dreams and aspirations we're going to we're going to come back to it a little bit later have you ever done that one more area i gave god my stuff you have stuff anybody have stuff anybody have too much stuff two hands and a foot i got to lean on one i got so much stuff I would, man, I hope y'all never fire me because I don't know what to do with all this stuff if I have to go somewhere. Seriously, we got so much stuff everywhere. But you know how you can determine whether or not the stuff is yours or God's? What happens when somebody breaks it? How do you respond? I can remember the first time that I said, God, you have my vehicle. I remember it like yesterday. I had a 1987 Ford Aerostar minivan. Anybody remember those hunks of junk? I put more money into the front end of that thing trying to make it drive straight. But I'm telling you, it was my Ford Aerostar. Q-tips were out every Saturday morning, right? My brother and I, we got together and we detailed our vehicles every Saturday morning. That was before kids. And so we would, yeah, right? As before French fries got in the crevices of everything, you know? So we're out there cleaning it. But I remember taking that Fort Aerostar van to our, our to a new position at Grace Bible as a youth pastor. 
And one of the kids in the youth group, being silly and just being a teenager, was out bouncing on my bumper on the back of the back of the van. I had a spoiler on the back of my van. I know it was ugly, but I didn't care. It was mine. And all of a sudden, as he's bouncing, <clears throat> rips the entire spoiler off. And at that very moment, the very thought came to my mind. Is this God's or mine? Because if it's mine, I'm going to be royally ticked. And I could say or do something that may hinder what that person does for the rest of his life, whether he comes back to the youth group, because he was a complete visitor, stranger. What happens when something happens to our stuff really determines whose it is? Is it God's or ours? I know people who, when they've had people in their homes, there was a little scratch on the end table, and they brought in somebody to fix the scratch after the group left because it is their stuff. Does the stuff have you, or does the stuff belong to God? I don't know about you, but those are things that are clarifying questions to, to me. Do we realize that everything that we have already belongs to God? Uh, we've talked about this before, but it bears reminding that I remember the first time I came in contact with a with a ministry called Generis, and he says three questions were asked. I've said these before, but just to kind of put them as a as a have a foundation for where we're going. When someone looks at all the stuff that they have and all the things that they do and all the dreams and aspirations and everything that's happening, and by the way, we'll get to Scripture in just a moment. But the three questions that were asked, number one, they start talking about their possessions and their money and their wealth. I wonder what I should do with my money. Good question, right? I wonder what I should do with my money. At least you're thinking about it. It's good. But as you begin to mature in the Lord, there's a second question that comes. I wonder what I should do with God's money. It's a better question, isn't it? Because now we're starting to say it's His. I wonder what I should do with God's money. But see, there's still a problem. It's the word I. I wonder what I should do with God's money. But when we really begin to understand that everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we can do, everything that's been given to us, when we really truly understand that correctly, the third question comes. I wonder what God wants me to do with his money. Swap out that word money for anything. Time, talent, treasure, dreams, aspirations, whatever it is. I wonder what God would have me to do with what he has given to me. And we realize that that's when we begin to grow in maturity towards not being an Indian giver. Because we can't take back what was never really ours to give. It's already his. If you would take your Bibles and turn to it, we're going to look at about four passages underneath this that just kind of build a little bit of a foundation for this. The first one is in, I, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 89. Psalm chapter 89, uh, it's the biggest book in the Bible. You can't hardly miss it if you th- scroll through there. It's Psalm chapter 89 and verse 11. It says this, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world in all its fullness, you have founded them. 
doesn't leave us any explanation whatsoever to the fact that everything that is in this world is God's. He made it, He created it, it belongs to Him, and yet we live as though it's ours. We enjoy it, for for sure. We look around and say, I'd like to have that, and a little bit of that, no, I don't care for that. I want a little bit more of that. And But we realize that everything that we observe, everything that we look at, everything that we can touch, feel, sense, is already God's. The world in all its fullness, he says, you have founded them. Turn over to the right just a few chapters, the Psalm chapter 104 and verse 24. Psalm 104 verse 24 says this, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. You look around and say, man, everything that we can experience, everything that we can notice, everything that we can observe, it's already his. Isn't that amazing? In Job, right before the book of Psalms, in Job chapter 41 and verse 11, he says this, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. (laughs) Everything under heaven. One more. Back to Psalm chapter 50 and verse 11. Psalm chapter 50 and verse 11 says this, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. This was amazing to me because over and over, there's probably 25 or 30 passages I looked at this week that all have to deal with the fact that God made all things. Without Him, nothing would exist. And he goes on in other passages and talks about the, the land that we look at, the scenery that we view, the sunset, the skies, the birds, the animals of the field, everything that you can observe, everything that you can notice, anything that you could look at. He says, I created them and they are mine. Isn't that amazing? So if that's really true, why do we try to live and act as though they're ours? Maybe you don't do that. Maybe I just do that. Maybe maybe there's one or two of us that do that. But I do that. It seems like so much of what I have is mine, and I control how I how everything is. Re- I respond to everything that that has to do that, that that's in my presence. You know, the stuff that's in the garage, it's it's mine. They're my tools. They're my vehicles. They're my toys. It's my Polaris. It's my this. It's my that. In one sense, we say it's all from God, but then we live as though it's all mine. So that when God says, hey, you could use this for this, no, 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 that, no, they'll break it. They can't touch it. And trust me, I struggle with that. Maybe you do as well. And yet we don't really want to live with the idea that God has blessed us so much, and it's not really ours. It's his. And once again, it tends to the idea that if it's really his, We can't take back what was never ours to give. It's His. And it belongs to Him. And the only reason you have it is because of His generosity. And I know that for me, that's a struggle sometimes. Because I want to control. Anybody else want to control outcomes? Come on. Thank you. Why? That's what our nature is. By nature, we're selfish, though you're not selfish. I know you're not. We all are. That's why we do everything that we do every day the way we like to do it, because we're selfish. 
how many of you, first thing you do is you go to the restroom, then you go get your shower, then you go get your coffee, or you might reverse those two. Then you look to see what's going on. You kind of grab your cell phone to see what's going on Facebook. And the whole first part of the day is given to what pleases me. That's how we operate. So here's a few thoughts to consider. Number one, we're not going to be here forever. You ever thought about that? God's, remind, God's word reminds us over and over. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, For it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. You realize, just, just news alert, we're not going to be here forever. How many of you ever, you ever think about that? We're not going to be here. Now, I know you don't think about it so much in your 20s. But when you start reaching 70s and 80s and 90s, you wonder how long I'm going to be here. But you know it's not going to be forever, right? So you have this timeline of eternity. You're just one little speck on the line. And we're not going to be here forever. So we live our lives as if if we're here to accumulate more stuff and get as much as we can before we die so we can... Then what? Give it to our kids? Give it to the church? Uh, give it to this organization, this foundation. So many, so often, many of us live for the what ifs, for the what might be that never happened, and we miss what can be for worrying about what might be. And in light of that, we say, "God, you have my, but not really. God, you have my, but not all the way." God, I'll give you my life because, after all, I really do want to spend eternity in heaven with you, but I don't want to give every area of commitment because, you know, I'm really busy down here. I've got all these kids. I've got all these jobs. i got all these hobbies. i got all these things I need to do. So we give God portions of our lives, and we look at the pie of life, and we have this one little sliver that we give to God, but this next piece of the pie, well, that one's mine. And in essence, we've become Indian givers. And rather than just giving God that one slice of the pie, he said, wait a minute, the whole pie is mine. The whole pie is mine. And yet we just want to give them a slice. So in light of the fact that we're not going to be here forever, we're going to die and then the judgment. So we don't talk about these things, but they're on our minds, right? I want to be faithful. I want to be obedient. I want to be committed. But there's these circumstances and I ask myself this question. Maybe you have before in the past as well. What of my excuses will be justified before God? Just being honest. Which ones will? Which one of my excuses for not being fully committed will God say, oh, yeah, bingo, that's the one. Yeah, I get it. No worries. You get a buy on this one. Which one of my excuses will be valid in God's sight? And by the way, I'm not preaching at you because as I I got a couple coming back at me. <laughs> I'm guilty. We think about the things we want to get, all the places we want to go. We secretly think about upgrading, getting a better this, a better that. And these are the things that can cause us to be spiritual Indian givers. Because we say, God, you have my life, but yet I'm not going to commit my time to you. God, you have my life, but I'm not going to commit my talents to you. God, you have my life, but I'm not going to give you my treasures. God, you have my life, but I want to do this. What parts are we giving to God and then taking back? 
And here's what I, I honestly believe this in my own life. Nobody sets out to be a spiritual Indian giver. Nobody from the get-go says, God, I'm going to give you my life, but just so you know, down the road, I'm going to be taking this and this back. Nobody does that, right? That's not normal. That's not realistic. You know how it happens? Very subtly. Very subtly. I can remember times in my life where I said, God, you have this. And then I catch myself trying to control the circumstance. Anybody else do that? Thank you. Let me give you an example, because everyone's talking about it. Everybody knows about it. My truck. You know I like trucks. Real men have trucks. In fact, Bubba just showed me his man card this week. He was away this week. He went into a shop, and they said the official man card. He's got an official man card. You get a man card if you drive a truck. I'm just kidding you. But, you know, I like trucks. I've said in my life I've given everything I have to God. There are people who look at me sometimes and say, I can't believe you let so-and-so do that. I don't care. And I really don't ask Jake. It irritates him sometimes. <laughs> Dad, Dad, be careful with that. I don't care sometimes. I don't. Everything I have is God's, even though I try to hold on to it. But, but here's what happens. God, it's your truck. But then it breaks down. And then I say, well, I can't fix it. But bless God, I'm going to keep trying to figure out how I can. Why? Because it's my truck. Well, wait a minute. It's God's truck. No, no, it's his truck. No, no, it's my truck. Okay, God, it's yours. Is it really mine? Yeah, it's yours. Okay, then don't worry about it. Okay, I won't worry about it. Until three hours later, I start figuring out how I can fix it again. We do that with so many things, don't we? We give it to God, but then we control the situation or try to control the situation. Because that's what we do. We're control freaks. We want to control the outcome. And because we want to control the outcome, what we give to God, we catch ourselves taking back. You fill in the blank for what it is for you. Maybe it is your time. Maybe it is your talents. You ever made a command and said, God, I will serve you by teaching the kids, or I'll serve you by showing up at work there. I'm just throwing stuff out. You know, there's things that need to be done around here. Say, God, I'll do this, and God, I'll do that. And, and then we catch ourselves, but this came up, and that came up, and then this came up, and then that came up. And next thing you really know, you really didn't get God at anything. But we intended to. We really wanted to, but it didn't happen. But God understands. Hmm. We're often busy doing life that we forget about the commitments that we've given to God, in essence. And we've taken what we have given to Him right back. It happens so subtly. Second thing to consider is this. You can't take anything with you when you die. The things that we think are so important, the things that we think that we just got to spend our time and energy and efforts on, when we die, it's over. Ain't nothing going with you to heaven or to hell. Some of you are going one way and some of you might be going the other. But if this is what you're living for in this life, just realize it ain't going with you. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and heaven is your home, then the best of this life can't compare to the least of heaven. So while we're accumulating on this life, realize that none of it's going with us. No matter how good it might be. 
No matter if it's the best this or the best that or the, 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 the most expensive this or the most expensive that. It doesn't matter. It's not going with you. I've heard people say that I'm building everything I can because I'm going to take it with me. I've actually been to funerals. In fact, I preached a funeral for a friend of mine many years ago that when I got there, his casket was in front, and inside the casket were beer cans and condoms and cigarettes and everything else because they wanted him to enjoy the next life. Guess what? Ain't none of it going with them. But to an unsaved world, to a world dying going to hell, might as well live it, live it up while you can. Enjoy what you got while you can. But for a child of God, we give him everything because he already owns it. We're just stewards of what he's entrusted to us, right? Is that true? Is that right? We're just stewards. We manage or take care of what he's entrusted to us. It's already his. And we can't take anything with us. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would turn your Bibles there just for a moment, let me just end this thought with this verse. 1 Timothy, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I'm sorry, verse 7 and, seven and following says this. It says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Okay, that's the premise. We came into this world with nothing. We're going out of this world with nothing. So while we're here, says in verse 8, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destructive and destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We're not going to be here forever. And we're going to take nothing with us when we leave. So concerning our talents, skills, or abilities... God is the one who gave you those as well. In 1 Corinthians, and this is an amazing thought to me. It always has been. Uh, I don't know about you, but growing up, yeah, I don't know if I should share this story or not, but I'm going to. Um, you say that that wasn't really true, Pastor. Yeah, it was true. Anybody ever been out on the playground and picked sides as a kid? I know this will shock you, but I wasn't always the first kid picked. Let me turn sideways. See, I'm still there. I'm so skinny that I'm, no, I'm not. I was always the big kid. And if it was a speed game, Ken Todd was not going to be picked. He's not the fast one. But if it was football, Ken Todd's going to be the first one picked because he's going to block everybody. You know, I can remember hating being picked because, I mean, I was just sitting there going, nah, 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 nah. and then it gets to the very end. It's like, oh, you guys can have the rest. You know how it works, right? There are times in our lives where you wish that you had the skills that someone else has. You wish you were faster, smarter, wiser, wealthier, whatever it may be. You wish that you had what someone else has. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says this, For who makes you differ one from another? It's a rhetorical question, but who's the answer? God. Who makes one to differ from another? God. 
And says, and what do you have that you did not receive? So you think you're skilled? Okay, maybe you are, but who gave you that skill? Oh, you think you're a good you're a good artist? Well, who who gave you that skill to be an artist? Oh, you think you're a good athlete? Well, who gave you the ability to be that good athlete? Oh, you think you're smart? Well, who gave you the ability to be smart? Question he asks here. He says, and what do you have that you did not receive? And we could put the words from God in there. So now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He said, why do you act as if you did this all on your own? You think this is because of you that you're a good artist or athlete or a academic or a anything, fill in the blank? You think this is because of you? Wake up. Over and over, we get the ideas as if we make our own life. Yes, there are choices that have consequences. Some good, some not so good. But everything that we are in life is because of God's grace and mercy in our lives. If we have something, if we are something, it's because of Him. So concerning our talents, skills, and abilities... God is the one who gave you those, too. How about our commitments? Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. Way back in the beginning, after 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings chapter 8. And this verse is just a really interesting verse to me. Verse 61. It says, Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Three things he says in this verse. Number one, be loyal. If you are a king, let's just put you on your hypothetical dream caps just for a moment. But you're a king. For a moment, you're a king. You got it all. You got the kingdoms. You got the wealth. You got the castle. You got, I mean, you, you, you just think it, it's true. You have it. There's one problem. Your guards aren't so loyal. They're behind the scenes conniving how they can get what you have. How does that make you feel? Safe? Secure? But you have everything! But your guards are conniving. Your guards aren't, what's the word? Loyal. You see... I wonder when the tables are turned, when we say that we're in God's army, we're a part of his family, and yet we're not loyal. What's it mean to not be loyal? It's really simple. It really is. It means you're not following through. You're not committed. A king wants a loyal army. God wants a loyal child. How do we disprove our loyalty? By not being obedient. By not being fully committed when we do things that please ourselves rather than pleasing Him because we feel like we're more important. But He says three things in this verse. First of all, be loyal. And then He says, walk in His statutes. Walk in His statutes. In other words, He's given us His Word. He's given us guidelines on how to live our lives. He says, these are the kind of the parameters in which I want you to live to bring glory to me and not to yourselves. And then He says, keep my commandments. So, what does it mean to be an Indian giver? means to say, God, I want to follow you, but I'm really not going to follow you in every area. I'm not going to be loyal in every area. God, I want to walk in statutes, but not all of them. 
I give you my life, but God, you have to understand this area here is, it's, I, I don't kind of, God, you understand. I mean, this area is just a little bit tougher. I didn't really, I didn't know that was going to be included, so I want to do this over here. I said, well, none of us has that conversation. No, we, we just do it. I want to keep his commandments, but not all of them. Because this one, it's like smorgasbord Christianity. A little bit of this, not so much of that. A lot of this, but man, that's, I don't like that at all. A little bit of prayer, not so much Bible reading because I don't like to read. A little bit of service, but yeah, hey, a lot of church. I like church. Smorgasbord Christianity. Have we given them everything, but then taken back parts and become a spiritual Indian giver? But he says, be loyal, walk in his statutes, and keep his commandments. So here's the issue for me. Maybe it's the same issue for you. Um, Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 14 for a moment. We're almost through. Matthew chapter 14. This is where I struggle as a person, as a child of God. Maybe you can relate. I want so desperately to say, God, you have everything. And here's the thing that I realize in my own life, that when I'm focused on him, things go so much better. And when I'm not, things kind of go downhill. Anybody, anybody else ever found that out? I know I have. When I'm right there and I'm walking with God and I'm spending time in prayer and I'm reading his word and I'm fellowshipping with him, so much easier than when I forsake prayer and forsake Bible reading and forsake walking in the Spirit. Here's when I become an Indian giver. I think so much of what we see here, just one little application of it. Follow along as I read, begin reading verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You guys know the story. You've heard it a thousand times probably in your life. Verse 25. Now on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Say, wow, isn't that cool? I mean, he actually got out. I mean, there's a storm going on. The boat's going, you know, the waves are coming in. And he goes, Lord, if it's really you, let me come out to you. And he says, come. He gets out of the boat and starts to go. I mean, how cool is that? How many would have done that? Right. It would have been fun, right? We might sit here and think, if I was there, I'd have done it. I don't know if I would have not. I might have been so scared. I don't know. I mean, who's this guy? I mean, this is not an everyday occurrence. You see somebody walking on the water. This is not normal. We'd like to say we would do it, but would we really do it? I don't know. But Peter has, uh, you know, he has some courage here. And he gets out of the boat and starts to walk towards Jesus. This is amazing here. So, verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous... He was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cries out, saying, Lord, save me. 
Real simple analogy here. See, for a moment, Peter was looking towards Jesus, walking towards Jesus, doing just fine. When did he begin to sink? That's exactly right. Thank you, Anthony, when he was scared. Because what was he looking at? He was looking at the waves. He was looking at the wind. He was seeing the effects of the wind on the waves. And it was, it was really, and he began to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus. You know, when I become a spiritual Indian giver, you know what I really have to admit? I'm taking my eyes off Jesus. Because, God, I want to give you my life, but yet I've got to control this circumstance. So, God, I, even though I give you my life, I want to take care of this one thing because I, I, I just feel like I've I got to deal with it. And it could be anything. It could be a job. It could be a family situation. It could be your finances. It could be your day-to-day life and things that you stress that's going on in your life. We give it to God, but then we try to control the outcome. Rather than keeping our eyes on Jesus, we look at the circumstance. And in essence, we're taking our lives, our commitment, our faith, our trust that we gave to him back and trying to work it out for ourselves. Anybody ever done that? I have. Man, it's hard sometimes to admit. I want I want everyone to think that everything is just all together. I want you to know that, boom, things are good in my life. Right. What we don't want to admit is we have struggles. What we don't want to admit is that we gave God our life, but yet we're still trying to control it. What we don't want to admit is that we gave God our time, talents, and treasures, yet we're still trying to control them. What we don't want to admit is that we gave God our family and our kids and our grandkids, yet we're still trying to dictate how they live and what they do. It's because that's what we do. We're control freaks. And we become spiritual ending givers. But here's the thing. How can I avoid that? I think it starts with what Peter did. Lord, he put his eyes back on Jesus. He put his eyes back where they should have been from the get-go. He says, Lord, save me. And guess what? Immediately, Jesus reaches down his hand and pulls him up. That's what every one of us needs to do consistently and constantly. To keep our eyes on Jesus. There's another passage of scripture. I love this. I I just read it. Uh, I hadn't read this in a long time. I've read through the Bible, but I, it's been a long time since I've been across this verse. In Zephaniah, first of all, try find it. Um, in Zephaniah, I'm almost there. Oops, passed it. Page back. There we go. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. He says this The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. This next phrase just really got to me. He will rejoice over you with gladness, He will quiet you with His love, He will rejoice over you with singing. Question here. God is in our midst. Who's the mighty one? 
Who's going to save? Who is rejoicing over you? Who is going to sing over you? Wow, that's almost trick questions, aren't they? That's what he says God's going to do. God is with you. He's rejoicing over you. He will save you. He's singing over you. What do we have to be afraid of? Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that get you excited just a little bit? That we have a God who's going to do those things over us? And yet we get worried about the circumstance that we should have given to God, but we take back because we wanted to control. I don't know about you, but how do we not become an Indian giver? Stay faithful. Two verses and I close. Romans chapter 12, first of all. These are familiar passages. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Some of your translations, they say reasonable form of worship. And says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Who is it that we're living for? Just practically speaking, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Do you realize that God never asks you to die for him? Nowhere in Scripture will you find a verse where God says, I want you to be willing to die for me. Now, we see the implications that Paul said. That Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. John says, I'm an image image bearer of Christ. We're not talking about metaphorically giving everything so that God is seen in my life, like Paul said, like John the Baptist said. I'm talking about physically dying. God never asked you to physically die for him. When we think of a sacrifice, we think of something that is given oftentimes in death as an atonement. He says, I don't want you to give your death to me. I want you to give me your life. And he says, this is your reasonable form. Reasonable means it's the least you can do. When you ask your kids to clean their room, isn't that reasonable? I mean, after all, I mean, you buy their food, their groceries, and, you know, you pay for the electric bills and, the, you know, so that they can have lights. I mean, isn't that reasonable that you'd – isn't that reasonable? Anybody agree? Right. Say, it's reasonable. It's the least you can do for everything I do for you. How often do we think of those terms and what God has done for us? And he says, this is your reasonable. It's, it's the least you can do for what I've done for you. He says, Listen, he says, we know Jesus Christ. He says, I snatch you out of the pit of hell and give you a solid standing and foundation on Jesus Christ so you can go to heaven one day. Isn't it the reasonable thing that you can do in light of what I've done for you? And he says, don't be conformed to this world, because as long as we're conformed to this world, it's going to be a struggle with what we live for. If we're conformed to what this world has to offer, if we're conformed to what this world can give us, if that is our mindset, we're heading the wrong direction. And trust me, that is a daily struggle for many of us. We want what this world has to offer as far as its goods We say, if I had just a little bit more of these goods, it would make this so much easier, so much better, right? Probably legitimate in some cases. This would make this easier. But yet, if we're not careful, this becomes the focus rather than this to get us to this. And we get focused on what we can get out of it rather than what we can give to it. Don't be conformed to this world. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it's something I think every one of us needs a daily reminder of. I do. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What would be different in our lives is when we got up in the morning and we said, God, this day is yours. And then as we start our day, we say, Lord, help me. I need your strength today. And as the day goes on, we're basically practicing First Thessalonians 5. It says pray without ceasing. And throughout the day, we're just saying, Lord, I just have the circumstance. I need your help. God, so-and-so just said this, and you know I want to slap him. But that ain't going to produce anything good. So, God, would you help me have the right response? God, I just had this situation come up, and I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right answer is. But, God, would you just show me? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God, how can I glorify you through these circumstances this day? And be willing to do that. Rather than saying, God, I know this day is yours, but I'm, hey, I got things I got to get done. It's amazing how often God changes our plans through a flat tire, through a circumstance that makes you stop, through a situation that makes it so you can't go any further. And we get irritated at that situation that God has allowed rather than saying God allowed it for a purpose and a reason. And it really to reveal to us where our focus is. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things. So often we seek the things rather than the kingdom. Right? Anybody else guilty? I am. I hate to admit that. I want you to think I'm perfect, but I'm not. Just in case there's any question, I'm not. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a spiritual Indian giver. I want to make sure that my commitments are real. That my commitments are final. And the only way I can do that is to daily say, God, I'm yours. God, daily, I want to do what pleases you today. I want to live for you. And guess what? I have found in my own life, I've shared this with Paul, I've shared it with others, I don't know about you, but it seems like every time I make another commitment to God to take another step spiritually, it seems like it just goes challenged by Satan. Anybody else ever sense that? You make this commitment, and all of a sudden it's just all kinds of challenge with that commitment. And you just have to know that any time you make a commitment to God, it's not going to go unchallenged. Satan's going to fight. Circumstances are not going to go right. Situations are not going to be pleasant. But it just reveals where our focus is. Let's give God everything and not take it back. Let's give God everything and see what he'll do with it. Let's pray.